Well, good morning. So good to see everybody here today. I want to echo what Blaine said. If you're visiting with us, you're our honored guest. We're delighted that you're here. And we, we hope you'll stay for Bible classes or at least to stick around for a little bit so we can talk with you. Uh, we're glad everyone's here, though, even those joining us online. I know we still have some doing that. And so we're really thankful that you're here with us to worship our God. And this is just such an amazing way to start the week is to, to worship our God and be with one another. There's a TV network uh, that has grown immensely in popularity over the last, I don't know, decade plus, maybe 15 years or so. It's HGTV, Home and Garden Television. Anybody watch HGTV? Anybody? Okay, we have some hands going up. Uh, you've at least heard of this most likely, and, and some of you, even though you didn't maybe raise your hand, you probably have seen shows on HGTV. Uh, when Haley and I first got married, that was... HGTV is just what we watch quite a bit, um, particularly a show called Hometown. But if, you, if you're not very familiar with it, these shows basically are all about the buying and selling of properties, uh, renovating homes, or completely flipping homes. Um, and it's a, it's a really neat uh, process that they go through to, to transform these homes. What I find so awesome is when people can take a home that looks like this picture right here, a broken down, beaten up, just dilapidated home. It's, it's dead. It's, it's just really not livable. And they can take that house and they can transform it into this next picture. Something like this, right? You get something beautiful, alive, livable. It's, it's a complete transformation. And some of you here have undertaken some renovate, renovations in your own homes or renovated other houses and sold them. And it, it is tough work. These guys on HGTV make it look like they can do it in, you know, 10 minutes. Um, but nonetheless, it still is neat to see the, the transformation. There's the picture of both of them together. That it goes from a, a broken down, beat up house to this beautiful living home. And I love to see the, the transformation that takes place. And all throughout these TV shows... They'll show you, hey, this is what the living room used to look like, and here's what it looks like now. And then typically they give you a whole picture of the home. Hey, here's what it used to look like, and here's what it looks like now. I like to use this imagery as an illustration for our lives as Christians. As Christians, before we come to Christ and give our lives over to him, we're the old house. We're the broken down, beat up house. Follow along with me in Ephesians chapter 2. Look what Paul says in verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." Folks, all of us were in this position at one point. Anybody who's not in Christ is still in this position, dead in your trespasses and sins. We're like that broken down, dead home that needs to be worked on, that needs to be changed. Dead in our trespasses and sins. And we know the wages of sin is death. And that's where we are. We're lost in sin before we give our lives over to Christ. But notice Paul's language is what? Past tense. You were dead in your trespasses in which you formerly walked. That's who we were. But then what happened? Well, Paul 
continues, when we give our lives to Christ, we become that new house. We're a new creation. Look what Paul says in verses 4 and 5. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Because of God's rich mercy and his wonderful love that he's lavished on us, even though we were dead in our transgressions, he's made us alive in his son Jesus. It's all because of him. It's not, it's not our works that save us. It's not our efforts. It's, it's because of God's love and his grace that we can be made new. We're a new creation. We're made alive. We go from dead in our sins to alive in Jesus Christ. And it reminds me of this passage in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you're in Christ, you've been made new. You're a new creation. The old things have passed away. And Paul actually calls uh, the, our lives before Christ and other passages, particularly I think of Colossians 3 as one of them. He, can, he calls our lives before Christ the old man or the old self. And we put on the new self when we come to Christ and we're washed of our sins through baptism. And we become new. We're a new creation. We're transformed. It's an amazing thing that we see. And thank the Lord that he gave us his son to make this possible. That we don't have to be dead in our transgressions and sins. We can be made alive in Christ. It's complete transformation. Now go back to that... uh, illustration of the HGTV shows. You know, a lot of times when they're, or most of the time, and maybe all the time, when those people renovate those homes, they don't stay there. They, they sell the property or they give it back to the owners. You know, a lot of times they're renovating homes that are already owned by people or they're renovating homes that they're going to put up for sale. They don't stay there. They, they sell the property, they, they renovate it, and they get out of there because they want to make their money and they move on to the next property, right? But here's the deal. With God, he stays. He, he works on us and, and he abides in us. He gives us his spirit to dwell in us. So he doesn't leave. It's not like he says, you know what, I've worked on Tucker and I'm done with him. I'm going to move on to the next person now and, and I'll work on that person then I'll go on to the next. No, no, he, he, he works on our lives. He tra- transforms us and he gives his spirit to dwell in us. He's always with us. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is the fact that Christians receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us to, to be with us. It's an amazing thing, folks. And why we're talking about this is because we've been doing a series this year, once a month, going through the foundations of faith. And we've gone through the first several and now we're at receiving the Holy Spirit. Now there's so much that we could cover with the Holy Spirit. There's no way we could do it in one lesson. And so we're going to just stick with the fact that we receive the Holy Spirit as Christians. Because again, there is so much we could cover. And David and I have talked here and there about possibly doing a series on the Holy Spirit. And that certainly is needed. And Lord willing, we will get to that one day. Because there is, I know there's a lot of disagreement about it. There's a lot of debate. But we want to stick with receiving the Holy Spirit this morning. And folks, that's always Uh, something that we see in Scripture, that Christians do receive the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Folks, here, what I want us to consider first is God's presence throughout the Bible. 
the truth of the matter is God has always, always desired to be in fellowship with man. He's always desired to be involved in our lives and, and with us. We are, after all, the crown of his creation, right? We are, we're the only ones who are stamped with his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We're the crown of God's creation. He's always desired to be with us and save us. And so I want to consider, as we start off here, God's presence as we go throughout the Bible. And we start all the way back at the book of Genesis. We go to the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony with one another, with God, with creation. There was no sin in the world at that point. And so much so that the text actually tells us in Genesis 3, verse 8, that the Lord, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I don't know exactly what that looked like for God to be walking in the garden in the cool of the day or what it exactly sounded like that is. All I know is that it says it happened. And so they had fellowship with, with God. But what happened? They sinned, right? They forsook God's commandment and ate of the tree that he told them not to eat of. And, and what happened there? Consequences. They were banished from the garden and many other things happened. Uh, consequences for the man, for the woman, for the serpent. There are consequences for our sins. And so they're banished from that garden. They lost that paradise, that oasis with, with God. But you know what? God didn't say, all right, I'm done with you humans. That's it. Uh, I, you know, I gave you one shot and you, you wasted it. No. God has con continued to pursue humans, continued to be with us. And so he chose a man named Abraham. And from Abraham comes the, the nation of Israel. And when we get to the book of Exodus, the nation has grown tremendously. And they're, they're led out of Egyptian captivity by these plagues that God sends on Egypt. And Moses as the leader. And they, they, they're led out of there. The latter half of the book of Exodus talks about the tabernacle. And you, you likely know what the tabernacle is, but we'll review this anyways. The tabernacle, in essence, is a portable temple that as they traveled to the promised land, as they're traveling through the wilderness, they set up this temple, this portable temple, the tabernacle. And that's where God's presence dwelt among his people. In Exodus chapter 40, after everything's been built for the tabernacle, Moses erects it, he sets it up, and everything's ready to go. And look what happens. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. And so when Moses set up this tabernacle, the glory of the Lord filled the tent that was inside the, the tabernacle walls. And, and any time that that cloud of God rose, they knew it's time to set out. And they knew this place was a holy place because that's where God was. This, this is where God was. It wasn't just a place you could tread upon and do whatever you wanted to do. Absolutely not. This is where the priests were doing their work. The high priest would, would meet with God once a year on the Day of Atonement in the most holy place. This was a holy place because God, that's where God chose to dwell among his people. Now when we get to the time of the kings, the Israelites have, have made it to the promised land. 
and they've occupied that land. And a temple is built under Solomon in Jerusalem. And Solomon, after that's, that's built, Solomon dedicates the temple with this beautiful prayer. And we see almost the same thing happening here in the tabernacle. We see almost the same thing happen in the temple after Solomon dedicates it. Look what happens in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. And so when the temple is erected and it's dedicated, God's glory fills the temple. That's where he chose to reside among his, his people was there in the temple. Now, we know that God cannot be contained by something made by hands. He's, he's omnipresent, right? He's everywhere at once. He sees everything. And yet he chose to make his presence known among his people in the tabernacle first and then in the temple. And again, the people knew that this was a holy place because that's where God was. And the temple was a special, special place for them where worship occurred to God. Now, here's the thing. When we get to the New Testament, yes, there is a temple in Jerusalem, although it was destroyed in 70 AD. There is a temple there. But where God is said to dwell is in another temple. It's us. We are the temple of God. It's an amazing thing that we see. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Paul actually says this twice in this book. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Now, within this context, Paul is talking about the, the church as a whole, collectively, as the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if anybody tampers with the, the, the church or destroys or harms the church, that's a, that's a wicked thing. God's going to punish them. Why? Because the temple of God is holy, and that is who we are. We are the temple now. But then when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's talking to us individually. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Folks, within this context, Paul is actually talking about a specific type of sexual immorality that was taking place in Corinth, or that could have easily taken place in Corinth. And he says, go check this out in verse 18, that this type of sexual sin is a sin against your own body. Every other sin we commit is outside the body, but not this sin. It's a sin against one's own body. He's talking about our, our physical bodies. It's a sin against our own bodies. And he's saying... You can't use your body in that way. You're not to use your body in this, this sinful manner. Why? Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you. You were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. You, you're not your own anymore. And therefore, you must use your body in better ways, in different ways than that. And so he's talking about each of us. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And again, I find this concept to be just an amazing thing that the Spirit dwells within us now. 
that that's where God chose to reside. What a beautiful, beautiful principle. And we'll talk more about this. So we see God has always desired to be within his, with his people, and he's made that possible first through the tabernacle, then through the temple, and now we as the temple. And so for the rest of the time, I want us to look now at passages that show that as Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the, the Spirit of God. And where I want to first turn is in, in the book of John, chapter 7. I was reading through the book of John a couple weeks ago, and I've read through the book of John several times. I knew I was going to be doing this lesson, and I caught something at the end of the chapter. And I was like, man, I, cannot, I don't know how I've ever overlooked this. It's an amazing thing that we see in John chapter 7. It's in verses 37 to 39. What happens is Jesus, the Feast of Booths is taking place. This is one of the feasts that the Jews were to observe. And Jesus goes up secretly. But he eventually makes himself known. He starts teaching in the temple. All right? And on that last day, he says this, verses 37 to 38. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is telling them, if you're thirsty, come to me. He's not saying a physical thirst that, hey, I'll give you a cup of water or or I'll give you another drink, although I'm sure Jesus would do that if, if somebody was physically thirsty. He's talking about a spiritual thirst, this inner thirst for something more, for the abundant life. And that's only found in Jesus Christ if we go to him. And he says that if you come to me and you believe in me, as the scripture says, from your innermost being will flow the rivers of living water. Now, what are these rivers of living water? That, that seems like an interesting principle. Well, we don't have to wonder what it is because John tells us in verse 39. Look at verse 39. The very next verse says this. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he's saying, if anyone comes to me, believes in me, from his innermost being will flow these rivers of living water. And he spoke, he's speaking of the Spirit, whom those who were to believe in him, as he said, were to receive. But as Jesus was there, it says at the, the end there, Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was still there. But when Jesus left, died, and, and rose, that's when this helper would come. He told his apostles that later in the book of John. And so he's talking about the, the Spirit. Let's look at another passage, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. In Acts chapter 2, we know this, that Peter preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost, and there were thousands of people there listening to him, right? And, and they hear this message that basically, Peter says, you've killed the Messiah, you've killed the Christ. And they're convicted in their hearts. They're convicted about this message. That's Acts 2.37. They say, men and brethren, what, what must we do? In other words, what do we need to do to make this right? And Peter says this, repent and be baptized. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's been a lot of debate on, okay, what's he talking about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit? Is it the Spirit as a gift, the Spirit is the gift, or is the Spirit giving some type of gift to us? And, and te technically, with the Greek construction, it could, be, it could be either. But that's when we have to look at the, the rest of the, the, the Bible and find out what it exactly is, is Peter saying here. 
Uh, J.W. McGarvey says this, the expression means the Holy Spirit as a gift. And the reference is to that indwelling of the Holy Spirit by which we bring forth the fruits of the Spirit and without which we are not of Christ. W.E. Vine, Arton Gingrich, and many other uh, Greek language experts say that this is a genitive of apposition. I know that's a lot of big words, but basically what that could mean is that it's the, gift, the, the Holy Spirit as a gift. And that, that harmonizes with the, the rest of Scripture that we see that we receive the Holy Spirit. Not, not some special miraculous gift from Him, but the Spirit Himself. That's what Peter is talking about here in Acts 2, 38. And so when we repent and we're baptized, we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and again, we'll, we'll corroborate this with other passages, and that, that's what fits mostly with the context of the Scripture, that the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit himself being given as a gift. Just look, three chapters later, Peter says this in Acts chapter 5. The church is growing tremendously, so much so that these, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the council, they're getting angry. They're getting jealous, and they want to put a stop to the preaching of Jesus' name. And they'd already told the apostles to stop preaching in Jesus' name, but they kept right on doing it. But they had them arrested in Acts chapter 5, the apostles arrested, and, a, and, and an angel lets them out, right? Opens the prison doors for them. But again, they're brought before the council the next day. And here's what Peter says to them and the other apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 29 to 32. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He's the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. He's saying, listen, we've been witnesses to all that Jesus Christ has done. And we have to preach this. But the Holy Spirit is also witness to these things. And he's given to those who obey Christ. How do we obey Christ? Well, we just talked about it in Acts chapter 2. He told them to repent, to be baptized for the remission of their sins, right? And those who obey Christ are given the Holy Spirit. And we have to re we receive it, right? Let's look at one more passage and then we will we'll close out here. Romans chapter 8. Paul gives a lengthy, lengthy discussion about the Spirit and, and the flesh. And this is something that Paul does multiple times, actually contrasting the spirit with the flesh they're opposed to one another the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh completely opposed and when we get to Romans chapter 8 he gives a lengthy discussion about this starting in verse 9 of Romans chapter 8 however you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ he does not belong to him if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death, death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, 
but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I know that's a, a lot to take in and we don't have the time to cover everything that's in this passage. But I want to point out a couple of things and then I'll, we'll wrap up here. As Christians, what does Paul say? We're not in the flesh anymore. We're in the what? We're in the spirit. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. That as Christians, we no longer indulge the passions of our flesh. Doesn't mean we're never going to sin again. We will sin. We will stumble. But we're not going to live that way. We're not going to indulge these passions continually. Instead, we're going to live in the spirit. We're going to put to death the deeds of the body, the, the fleshly desires by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. doesn't mean that the Spirit gives us special messages saying, hey, Tucker, do this or do that. No, that's, that's not what we're talking about. He's given us his message right here in, in the Word. He's given what we need. And we have to be led by the Spirit by being in 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 line with the Spirit in His Word. Remember, the, the, nothing that's written in the Bible was written on a man's own accord. The Spirit guided them into writing all of the truth. And so we've got to be living this way. There has to be a change. Now that we have the Spirit in us, we can't live like, like we li used to live. In the passions of our flesh, we have to put those things to death and live righteously. Again, it doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. We will stumble, but there has to be a change. We're no longer in the flesh, but we're in the spirit now. And here's these, the other thing I want you to know. If you don't have the spirit, then you're not God's child. That, I mean, that's just what he says here. He says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if we go further down, he says, if you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. If we have the Spirit, then, then that means we're God's children. That's like God's mark to show that, hey, this is my child. And in other spots, the Spirit is called the seal. It's as if like when we become Christians, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit and we're marked out as a child of God. And through that, we can call to God as our Father. Abba, Father. But if we don't have the Spirit, well then, we're, we're, not, we're not His. That's what Paul is saying here in this passage. And we can go on and on and on about the fact that we receive the Spirit. That as Christians, we have God's Spirit in us. It's an amazing truth, folks. This morning, if you, have, if you are a Christian... You have the Spirit. You have God's Spirit in you. And this should change everything for us. For one, we're never alone. We never have to wonder, am I going to have God with me? Am I going to, does he forsake? No, absolutely not. First of all, he plainly tells us he'll never leave us or forsake us. But he's always in us. He's with us everywhere that we go. What a comfort that is. And in fact, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. The helper. That's part of his job is to comfort us. And to have the, have the spirit in us is a comforting thing that we're never alone. But also, 
because God's Spirit dwells in us, as we've already said, we should be living completely different lives, changed lives, lives that are abundant lives. And we follow his direction laid out in the word of God. Folks, I want we all, all to, to know that, again, we could talk about the Holy Spirit for days. And hopefully one day we will get to a lesson. This is not a complete lesson on the Holy Spirit. This is simply about receiving the Holy Spirit. But I want to close out by making everybody understand that this is all possible because of Jesus Christ. That because of Jesus' perfect life, because of his death on the cross for our sins, because he rose from the grave, we can become children of God and we can receive his spirit. There's no other way that that's possible outside of Jesus Christ. It's all because of him. And this morning, if you want to respond to him and be baptized and start walking in the spirit, you can this morning because of what Jesus Christ did for you. If you feel like you've walked away, wandered away from God, and you want to come back, you can do that this morning as well. But if you have any need, please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.